Louisiana? Arkansas. I'm sorry, when we knew each other, when we were both working in the car business, oh my goodness, lifetime ago. I'm glad not to be there anymore. It's not going so well for government motors these days. Abel's hanging in there, though. So, uh, John, you ready back there? All right, I'm not used to seeing the sound man with so much hair, you know? <laughs> We gave Darren a thimble of shampoo for Christmas and told him it was a lifetime supply. Okay, so this evening is June 3rd, 2009. I'm going to get started so I don't get excommunicated. And uh, our message this evening is called Under His Feet. Um, I don't know how many of you remember Nancy Sinatra, but her one claim to fame, fame other than being someone famous's daughter, was uh, these boots were made for walking. Mm -hmm. right? You want to sing it for us, Mike? No. But you do remember it, right? Yeah. That was back from your day, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those addictive songs. You can't get out of your head if you hear it because it's repetitious. There's a theme in the Bible that is that repetitious, and uh, I've touched on it in the past, but... I didn't have the tools that I needed in years past to put some of these pieces together. And every year that goes by, you ought to be getting a clearer picture of who, who God is and just how big He is. If your basic thought and co concept of Him has not changed in the last 10 years, you are probably not seeking Him very hard. To the Hebrews who first introduced the concept of Yahweh God to the rest of the world, they saw Him as a 70-sided jewel that every time you turned it, a new facet of His glory would become new. In fact, when they find a scripture that they don't understand, they praise God that they do not yet understand it, for they know He will reveal it to them. And they praise God for the mystery that is in the Bible, rather than needing everything to come together in logical, linear sequence. Because if your God can be contained in your doctrinal statement, if He can be contained within the confines of the concepts you laid out for him in your mind, he's not very big. He's a little bit like what the kids carry around, the little Pokemons. It means pocket god or pocket monster, <laughs> same thing. And uh, God's bigger than that. So turn with me to Psalm 8. I want to introduce to you a concept. I teach y'all Hebrew phrases all of the time, but I realize if I don't repeat them very often, you probably don't remember them. Does anybody know what Tukun Ha Olam means? Isn't that good? That brother is a Bible student. Huh? And just got accepted into school and got all of his aids set away. That's pretty awesome. Huh? A lot to be proud of in him. huh? You go get, get with Michael and you can pray and you can get the honor roll. So Tukun Ha Olam means to repair the world. And Jewish people as a whole, this is ingrained in the culture, in the psyche of the Hebrew people, but it's actually outlined in Scripture, and we're not going to cover it tonight. I just wanted to remind you as we go through some of these topics. One of the reasons that per capita Israel has more professional people than anywhere else in the world, meaning doctors, lawyers, engineers, is because these people have taken part in a, uh, a profession that they believe has a chance to impact the world. It is taught to Jewish children from the time they are very young that the world is broken, and it's their job as God's chosen people to bring healing to it. This is really different than Western Christianity where we're taught the world is broken and it is our job to escape it, to go away, to segregate ourselves from it, to go to other places called heaven and uh, have nothing to do with it. And when you see Jesus praying in places like John 17, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, i.e. while they're trying to repair the world. If you're going to fix the uh, ocean-going vessel, Lord, protect them from the sharks while they do it, is the kind of thought. This starts early in the Bible, but I wanted to start with Psalm 8, and our topic is under his feet. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Because of, your, because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. He ordained praise from the lips of children and infants 
because of his enemies? That's a strange statement, isn't it? Our God has the small and lowly things in the world praise him so that the enemies of God will look and see he can use the smallest to overcome the mightiest. Isn't that the beauty in a story like David and Goliath? We'll come back to that later. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? When man is used like this in English, what is man that you're mindful of him? Do we mean a man? Do we, what is that man that you're mindful of him? No, it means mankind, right? Keep that in mind here. What is mankind, what is man, that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. This psalm drives home the idea that among all of the creatures that move upon the earth, God set mankind above everything else. Everything that is here, Everything that was here when man was put here, everything that ever will be here, was intended to be beneath the feet of mankind. This is reflected in Genesis 1.28. You can turn there if you want, but I rarely lie when I preach. And it says for Adam to subdue the earth. I've taught you before that to subdue something means that it implies resistance. There were items, there were beings, there were things upon the earth when Adam was placed here that were enemies. And Adam was told to subdue them. And over and over and over throughout the Bible, we see that man is supposed to be above these things, and yet often falls beneath them. Adam was supposed to have dominion over every bird, every, over every livestock, over everything that creeps upon the ground. And he yielded to a sly-tongued snake and submitted his future to something other than God. All mankind has fallen in those regards. But this was not our calling. It's not what we were supposed to be. Can y'all say amen to that? Amen. amen. You ever been filled with a thought, something's wrong. This just doesn't feel right. Something's not right with the world. You, you hear 60 songs like we're waiting on the world to change. You hear this come out of people's hearts because it's put inside of us to long for something more than this. We know we were meant for something better than what you see around you all of the time. You see somebody groveling through garbage looking for food. And in your very heart of hearts, you know mankind was not meant to live like that. Am I wrong? No, that's, that's right. You, you can see children mistreated. And you know that we're better than that. See, people do degrading things. And something about you knows we're made in the image of God. We're not supposed to be in that situation. Well, this psalm says that everything was placed under mankind's feet. Turn with me then to Hebrews 2. You'll hang a right in your Bible. If your pages are as thin as mine, it won't take all that long to get there either. So Steve's there, Bob's there. Where are the rest of them? That's good, brother. My wife is twice as righteous as I am, too. In Hebrews 2, this psalm that we talked about is quoted. But I think most of the time when people read it, we read it as Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. And I want to submit to you the idea as we read this that when we read that in the Psalms, it was mankind and not just Jesus. So we're going to start in Psalm, I'm sorry, Hebrews 2, verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. If you ever felt bad you couldn't remember a scripture, you can always do this the Hebraic way. There is a place where someone has testified. <laughs> he didn't say it was Psalm 8. You can go the Jesus route. Is it not written? This puts the, back, the burden on the back of the hearer. <laughs> this is the method I prefer. 
What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that was not subject to him. Prior to uh, this afternoon sitting really contemplating that, I had always read that as Jesus. I had read that as in putting everything under Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to Jesus. That's not the psalm that was quoted. I mean, that is very much true, but that is not the psalm that was quoted. In putting everything under mankind, He left nothing that is not subject to mankind. First thing that ought to be rushing through your mind is, but wait, we don't see that. Sometimes Fred's shoulder still hurts. Uh, occasionally, uh, Eric's kids still get sick, right? If everything is subject to us, then why do we see this? Well, he answers that question. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Before we read this next part, in what way does that help us to see Jesus? Well, think about this. Can you imagine that you are told, Israel, you are a sovereign nation. These Philistines shall not be rulers over you. And you walk out and say, great, we're free. Everything is subject to us. We're not anybody's subject. The problem is there's this nine and a half foot tall giant out there named Goliath. And everywhere you turn, the Philistines have these kind of swords you don't have. And you don't feel very empowered. In fact, it looks like you're their subjects and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Are you catching the parallel here? Mm -hmm. You don't feel very victorious when you have to watch your loved ones die, do you? Mm -hmm. Or like me, rush to the hospital with my son, cannot breathe, turns blue, right? It's not the most victorious moment in your walk. But just like Israel watched one little boy walk out there anointed by God, who considered it God's fight and not his own, and he struck down that giant and cut off his head to show them it could be done, there is one among the human race. God dipped himself down into the human race and put on flesh so that he could show us it can be done. So you may not see victory in every area of your life, but you see the one that God has exalted to his right hand, and friends, he's made of flesh and blood just like you, and he has done it. He conquered even death. This means that there is no enemy that we face that cannot be where God said it should be, where it belongs, under your feet. In putting everything under Him, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Yet at the present we do not see everything subject to Him, mankind, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Saints, I want to tell you that although you may not see a present victory in every area of your life, God has declared it to be so. He has said that he placed you at the very top of the spiritual and natural food chain, even with angels and heavenly powers in submission to you. Occasionally we see this work in supernatural fashion. A man, Elijah, who was just like you and I, prayed 
and it did not rain. He prayed again, and it rained. He prayed, and fire came down from heaven. The same man, in the space of one chapter, was answered with both water and fire from heaven. And James makes the point he was a man just like you. I said, but wait a minute. When I prayed, fire didn't come down. Keep praying. Because right now you may not see everything subject to you, but you see Jesus, and it is subject to Him. We have these glimpses of the way things ought to be. Let me ask you another question. If before time was instituted in the sense that man was dying, and so we started counting our years in that way, right? However long Adam and Eve were in this garden, because we really don't know, however long they were there, out to the left of that on a timeline, Somewhere out before that, how long did God exist? Yeah, who, who knows? Forever and ever and ever. And however long man was in the garden with that tree and existed and walked with God in the cool of the day and all of those things. We don't know how long that is, right? And then at the end of this book in Revelation, there is a garden-like setting and man is there and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations and there's a stream, the rivers of which make the people of God glad. And how long does that go on? Forever and ever and ever. So if things were good with God to the left of the first tree, and they were good with man and God to the right of the last tree, it's really just this messed up time period between the trees that is the temporary glitch in the system, isn't it? See, right now we're experiencing an anomaly. We're experiencing a time period with that which we were supposed to rule over is trying to rule over us. And it is our job to set that right. That starts in your own mind, in your own spirit, in your own thoughts. There are certain things that ought not be able to take precedence in your life. Grumbling is one of them. We need to learn to say, dirt, get down. You belong beneath my feet. I will walk on you, and you will not walk on me. How many of you have been beaten by an oppressive thought in your life? Right? Very rarely has something manifested in a supernatural sense jumped upon you, beat you down, taken your Bible away, and stole your hope. But it can start with a thought that God won't do it for you. He did it for Darnell. He does it for Cynthia. But He won't do it for Jan. A thought like that. What are we supposed to do with that? 2 Corinthians 10 tells us to take it captive. You ever been taken captive? I had an older brother. I don't talk about him much because it was a brief time period in my life. But he was just enough older than me that when we wrestled, he could hold me captive. It was unpleasant. Truth is, I had an older sister and she could do the same thing. <laughs> Take it captive. This means grab it by the neck. Take dominion over it. Don't allow it to rule in your life. Turn with me to Luke 10. I want you to hear how Jesus says this. Saints, certain things should just be beneath your feet. There are certain thoughts that you as a prince with God, you as somebody who is now the praise of God, you as somebody that the Bible calls a son of God, there are certain things that are simply beneath you. And if you are in Christ, and we teach you who you are, we should not have to teach you how to act. Because you will not catch the son of a great prince. You will not catch a world leader eating out of a garbage can. They see themselves as better than that. And they will not do it. So why would we feed the princes of the universe, forgive the Freddie Mercury reference, the princes of the universe, spiritual garbage. We are made for better than that. We are supposed to sit at the king's table. We are supposed to be fed the bread Say that twice. From heaven. In Luke 10, look at the 18th verse. He replied, well, let's pick up at the 17th verse. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Should that have been a surprise? In the very beginning, by the way, demons are not listed as created beings anywhere. I'm certain that they were created, but it's not part of the six days of creation spelled out as such. When Adam was told to subdue the earth, there was already good and evil here. Or there wouldn't be a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
There was already darkness that could be separated, light from darkness. That wasn't created on any of the days. There were already water here, almost like the scene of a big judgment. But in any case, should it have been a surprise to these men of God that demons submitted to them? The Word says that He placed everything under mankind's feet. It is the destiny of mankind to rule over everything. Not all men reach their destiny, but it is the destiny of all mankind to rule. So when you see someone who is being ruled over, they are not reaching their destiny in Christ. You know, whatever you present yourself as a slave to, to obey its desires, Romans 6 says you are a slave to that. That's an amazing thing. That means that you could have complete and total victory over greed. But if you submit to greed and its desires, you have become like a slave to it. What happens when those who are supposed to rule over everything become that which is ruled over? Well, then we have these little images of God that have submitted to weird demonic powers that are trying to usurp God's authority anyway. Are you beginning to see the enemy's motivation for trying to trap you into certain things? Mm. You know, we say, God will provide for me. Do you follow that statement up with actions that show you believe God will provide for you? When you say, I know God heals, do you act as if He will heal you? Or do you always hold something in reserve? But wait, I'm still a little hurt. But wait, I, there's still a, a little bit of a problem that he, he, didn't, he didn't meet my whole need. Or do we begin to act like His Word is true? Do we take Him at His Word and be what He's called us to be? Say, wait a minute, I don't see it in every area. It's okay. You see Jesus. Will you trust Him enough to step out? What an amazing question. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Amazing. Theologians have tried to tie this to Isaiah 14 and say, in eons past, Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning. I find no scriptural or textual justification for that. What has just happened is these men have gone out and preached the kingdom of God. They have preached the king's dominion as at hand. You can be inside of his kingdom now. And they saw it happening. They saw men set up as rulers upon the earth. Not rulers in the way that Gentiles are rulers. Rulers in the way that people of God rule. Meaning that sicknesses left their body. Demons left their body. They had peace in their homes where previously their homes had been afflicted. I saw Satan fall like lightning means in their lives right then. I have given you authority to trample on snakes. Uh, would anybody like to show me what it looks like to trample? Judah, how about you? What does it mean to trample? Stand up, son. Trample. Show me what trample is. Why didn't Judah get on his hands? Why didn't Judah trample on his hands? Why didn't he, why didn't he stop and do a big butt flop? <laughs> or belly flop? Why didn't he roll around on his head? How do you trample? When something's beneath your feet. We need to remind the enemy where he belongs. He is beneath our feet. Do you think Jesus said this only for the 72? He started with 12, then He said it to 72 and told them to go preach it to the world. When we begin to know who we are, we will begin to act in the way that God intends for us to act. But as long as you believe that you are less than, you are not competent, you are not good enough, you are not, you are not, you are not, you are not, then what hope do we have? Because God said from the very beginning, your job was to subdue the earth. Your job is to repair it. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. All the power of the enemy. How many of you could say that? I am overcoming all the power of the enemy. I have a hard time saying that. I overcome it in a lot of areas. I'm still trying to figure out how to get the ALL part to work. But you know what? John's got some areas beat. I don't have beat yet. Abel's got some areas beat. I don't have beat yet. This is why we encourage each other and we fellowship with each other and we say, Brother, how did you get that beneath your feet? It's still trying to walk on me. 
And when we don't know, Jesus is the ultimate example. It's all beneath his feet, even death. But mark my words, this life is a process of learning to put it beneath your feet. Saints, some of you need to put your computers beneath your feet. Some of you need to put the phone beneath your feet. It's a whole lot more productive to take your concerns, your complaints, dare I say your gossips, to the throne than it is the phone. It will not do you any good to whine and complain to your friends and find pity. We can take them to the throne and learn how to tread upon the snakes, upon the scorpions. But be careful who you take counsel with. And if the counsel is not occasionally a slap in the face that says you're better than this, you're not receiving good counsel. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. It is God's pleasure to reveal to the lowly things, the small things, the infants that He's ordained praise through. It is His good pleasure to reveal to you how to overcome the nine foot tall giants. Turn with me to Corinthians 15. Then we're going old school. Older Testament. But 1 Corinthians 15. There. Steve's fast. Your wife's still helping you? <laughs> Good job, brother. I've been getting a lot of interesting questions because... Now Jesus is three for three in this one little spot for thyroid cancer. And uh, it's funny. People say, well, you know, what are y'all doing? Well, there's no new program. You know? You know what it is? It's, it's the dress of this particular pastor. It obviously impresses the angels. Right. We're taking Jesus at his word. And you know what else we're prepared to accept? that God may want to glorify himself through the way that we die. But unless he says that, we are going to fight to put it beneath our feet. There's no magic in this place. There's just the king of kings in this place. And isn't it just like him? Isn't it just like him to pick a little storefront church to do amazing miracles in? We couldn't sell it if we wanted to. No books for 1999. No CD series. No television crews. Just people who are learning to put the enemy beneath our feet. God shows up. Yes. God shows up. We pray for rain and carry an umbrella, brother. You know what? When you have very little, God is everything to you. When you have an awful lot, you have a lot of competing interests. So if you find yourself tonight in a place where a lot's been stripped out of your life, praise God, the poor are rich in faith. Praise God. The simpler your life, the easier it is to cling to Him and Him alone. In Corinthians 15, I wanted to read to you this. And then we are going uh, to 1 Samuel. So in Corinthians 15, starting in uh, 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Firstfruits are what Hebrews would get out of their crops. What you would do is you would plant a good crop. Your crop would grow. And when it was maturing, you would go find the very best of all that was out there. You would put a scarlet cord around that and you would bring it to the temple and you would wave it before the priest and say, hey guys, this is a sample of what's growing out there. There's going to be more just like this beautiful piece of whatever. Pardon. God did this with Jesus. He took him with the scarlet cord wrapped around him. He raised him the first of mankind to be raised out from under the power of death and truly everything beneath his feet. And he is waving him before the universe saying there is a harvest of men out there just like this. Saints, that's you. You are not called to be just a follower of Jesus. You are called to be just like Jesus. In many languages, there is no way to say that somebody is a Christian. They say, you are Christ. Members of His body. Chips off the one bigger block. You are part of the anointed one. 
That means you walk as he walked and everything was beneath his feet. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. We find out that there is a process. This has been completed in Jesus. But for us, we are still waiting for the completion. The foundation has been laid and the capstone is going to descend from the heavens and complete the building. When He comes, those who belong to Him. Then the end will come. When He hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Before we read that next line, is there still dominion, authority, and power? Well, sure. People are exerting it all of the time. Kingdom is clashing against kingdom. Light is clashing against darkness. Not just out in the world, sometimes within the confines of your very own spirit. There will come a time when the warfare has been so intense when the struggle has been so strong, when the victory has become so complete that the King of Kings will split the sky with His coming and all dominion, all authority, all power except His would be put to a complete end. And only those that stood by Him in His trials will receive His kingdom. Where would you be if that happened now? Would you be 30% saved? 60%? Saved on Wednesdays and Sundays. Saved when mom and dad were looking. Where would you fall? You know, most of Jesus' parables were written to people who are supposed to inherit the kingdom. And he said, you'll be outside where there is weeping, gnashing of teeth, and dogs. What would he say, you think, to the American church? Oh, you're so much better. I didn't mean any of those things about you. I was talking about the Europeans. What do you think he would say? Saints, it's a remnant of the remnant. The Pharisees heard him speak and they said, is it true only a few will be saved? He said, yes, it is as you say. Yes, it is as you say. He said, Pastor, are you trying to scare me? No, you better believe it. Every day you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Your salvation is not something that you lose one minute and gain another. Your salvation is a lifetime of walking towards Jesus. But you better fight to stay on track. You are made to trample on things, not be trampled upon. How is your life going so far? What does the fruit look like on the tree? What a good question, huh? Would anybody honestly look at the fruit on your tree and say, there is a Christian? Or would others go, you know, I mean, I thought he might be a religious man. What are they going to say at your funeral? I'm wearing a shirt under this one. Jen doesn't like me to wear t-shirts. She says, I need to stop doing that. It says, live a life that doesn't make your pastor lie at your funeral. It's my favorite shirt because I'm the pastor that other people call when they don't have a church or they don't know what to do. How will that go for you? I want to live a life that leaves no doubt. Look at this next line. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. He goes on to explain that God himself is not under Christ, but God will receive from Christ the creation fully submitted. He must reign until he puts everything under his feet. Well, it looks to me like Jesus has achieved in His own body glorified right hand of God's status. He has called many brothers to come and join Him in this uh, role so that He can declare our names among the congregation of the saints, Hebrews said, so that He is not ashamed to call us brothers. But He must reign and this process must continue until every enemy has been put underfoot. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 8. Come on, John. And John's using his phone. Paul used a scroll. 
John's using his scroll bar. 1 Samuel 8. In Israel's kings, in the story of Israel's kings, you know what? I think I need to get in 2 Samuel 8. Let me get there. Yeah, 2 Samuel 8. In the story of Israel's kings, we find something. Actually, 1 Samuel, you're going to be in 2 Samuel 8, but in 1 Samuel 8, the prophet Samuel is having a discussion with the nation. And he says, look, look, you don't want a king. If you take a king, he's going to put your sons and daughters in his army. He's going to make them run in front of the chariots. He's going to enslave you. So you don't want a king. They said, yes, we do want a king. We want a king just like the nations around us. And the king that they picked was a head taller than everyone else. He was a handsome man. Came from a very uh, a well-established line of Benjamites. Uh, wealthy people. The kind of man that might run for office and win. And everything that could happen that was wrong did happen under his reign. Mostly because he cowered to the people. Mostly because he uh, didn't serve God with all of his heart, although God had changed his heart. And in Israel's kings, we see a shadow and type of what is happening in the creation right now. Before we get the king that God desires for us, we get the king of our own choosing. The one that is truthfully too cowardice to do God's will. And he rules in a way that preserves his power and appeases the people. This is an antichrist king. This is what Saul is. But after Saul came a man named David. And let me ask you something. Did Saul stop being king in one day and David become king in a day? What happened? Somebody anointed, Samuel anointed David king, right? And a very few, small group of people began to follow David. In fact, after David killed Goliath and he went on several campaigns, people began to sing songs. Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. In other words, there is a ruling king right now. There is somebody right now who stands in the office of king. But David is really our king. David is the one who is on the rise. David is the one who will get it all. And that minority began to grow. And the minority began to grow and grow and grow until there was a day in which David was named king over both Israel and Judah at Hebron. And all of the nation recognized him as king. But that was a process. A process that involved suffering. A process that involved obedience. Does that remind you of Hebrews 2? He was declared to be God's son through much suffering, right? Now watch towards the end of David's reign what happens. In 2 Samuel 8, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Tell me something. Didn't David really defeat the Philistines the very first day he comes upon the scene? I mean, what was the bargain that Israel struck with Philistia that day? We will send our champion out. You send your champion out. If your champion beats ours, we'll serve you. If ours beats yours, you'll serve us. Who won that day? Israel. Israel did. Through David. In fact, David carried that giant's head around with him for the next couple days. Right? Cut it off with his own sword. Carried it like a trophy. So in David's heart, Philistia was already beaten. But you know what? David's men had to learn to walk in David's footsteps. Philistia was beneath David's feet the day... He set out on God's behalf and cut off that giant's head. But the rest of Israel had to learn to walk in David's footsteps. And he taught them. Listen. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Man's original calling from Genesis 1.28. Beneath the feet, subduing. Subdued them. And then he took Metheg Ammon from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with the length of a cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. Before we read the rest, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, if you can lay down an entire army and go, let's see, eeny, meeny, miny, killing, eeny, meeny, miny, toe, killing, I would say that was beneath your feet, wouldn't you? 
In other words, everywhere David went, whatever he did, he had complete, and like the kids would say, teetotal victory. But tell me the truth. Didn't David have that the first time he ever stepped on the battlefield? What did he tell that giant? You have come against me with sword and spear, but I have come against you with the name of the living God. It was not David that was being defied. It was God. So let me ask you something. If you were put above all of the creation and everything under your feet, who put it there? God did. Who are these powers defying? Is it you or is it God? See, the, the, the self-righteous, uh, arrogant thing about all of this is that we've allowed this framework to be about us and how it affects us. It has nothing to do with you and your idiosyncrasies and your weaknesses. It's that George is called, Drew is called, Brandon is called to live in a way that glorifies God with the enemies of God beneath his feet and it speaks a message about God because God's the one that said it will be this way. I would rather God be true and every man a liar. Wouldn't you? We see this so rarely though. Look at this last verse of this part. Uh, look at verse 6. He put garrisons in the Armenian kingdom of Damascus and the Armenians became subject to him and brought him tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. During Saul's day, there was a tabernacle to Moses. Uh, they called it Moses' tabernacle. The, uh, the presence of God dwelt there and it was prescribed by God. Uh, but it was not as worshipful as what David would do. Something happened during David's reign. This warrior king who put all enemies under his feet, this warrior king who went to battle with all of the enemies of God and won, took the ark of God, put it upon men's shoulders, showing that men carry the glory of God. And he marched it up on Zion and he put it on a tent in a tent on Zion called David's Tabernacle. The sides of this tabernacle were rolled up so that when nations passed by at a distance and could see Zion, they could see in to see the cloud of the glory of God filling a temporary dwelling called the tent. David did one more. He went around and he hired musicians to worship 24 hours a day so that people would see that this warrior king who sub, uh, caused or subdued all of the enemies of God was surrounded by praise and worship in God's presence. In Acts 15, please don't go there, as the apostles were watching, they said, you know what? We see Gentiles coming in. We see that something's happening. This is in agreement with the words of the prophet. God is rebuilding the fallen tabernacle of David. And the average reader just keeps going. What could that mean? A time of joyous warfare when others see the presence of God because it's being carried around in a tabernacle. You know, Paul calls a tabernacle a tent. A tent. He refers to your body as a tent. You are supposed to be carrying the glory of God around in you full of praise and worship and at war with the enemies of God so that everyone around you sees something. They see God exalted in your life. They see that God is victorious in your life. Not that you don't struggle. Not that you don't have problems. But that there is one God. You are His and He is yours. This is that time period. After every enemy has been put underfoot, we enter into a different time period. Turn with me to 1 Kings 4. Who's familiar with 2 Corinthians 5? You're in 1 Kings 4, but who's familiar with it? Now we groan inwardly, not wanting to be burdened, but rather to be set free. While we're in this tent of a body, we groan and are burdened. But we have a building from God. Why would Paul speak about your body as a tent and say that you're going to receive a building? What's the difference between a tent and a building? One is permanent and one is temporary. Right now we are carrying around the glory of God in temporary dwellings. They're fading. <laughs> Not you guys, but this one is fading. 
I'm getting new gray hairs in my beard all of the time. Yeah, it's Jennifer's fault. But what I am waiting for is something that will never fade. A permanent building from God. I don't have that yet, but you know what? I see Jesus, and He's the only human being that does. He tasted death and He got up from it in a body that would never die. They saw it. They touched Him. And the Scripture promises, just like we bore the image of the man from the dirt, so shall we bear the image of the man from heaven. This is what we're called to. We're called to be on top and not the bottom. We need to think about this the next time we consider doing things with our bodies that are unholy. Young ladies, you might consider this with your next clothing choice. We're supposed to be displaying the glory of God, not the belly button ring of man. Mom, you don't have a belly button ring, do you? The 60s were wild, weren't they? So in 1 Kings, see, while I'm in front of the whole group, I'm safe. Relatively. Matt, you might want to move down front and get prepared to block. In 1 Kings 4, I want to talk to you about a different time period. There is a time period coming when the king of kings will set up his residence upon the earth. The time period of war will have ended. And when the war ends, the peace begins. This time period corresponds to Solomon's reign. Look at one of the first things Solomon does in his reign. In 1 Kings 4, verse 7, Solomon also had 12 district governors over all Israel. He talks about their su supplying provision. But let me ask you something. Do you think it is a uh, coincidence that the king of peace, Solomon, during the age of peace, Solomon, that followed the age of David's <coughs> tabernacle, had 12 district governors? Do you remember that Jesus said something similar? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the 12 of you will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's Matthew 19, 28. Uh, verse 27 of chapter 4. The district officers, each in his own month, supplied provision for King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. Each person anointed in God's kingdom, each person is supposed to bring in produce. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. All of you have been saved for a purpose. You are supposed to be bringing something in to the king's storehouse. So we're talking about a time period in which there are 12 governors and there is a king of peace. How about this one? Look at 4.20. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river of the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were... Solomon's subjects all his life. Goes on down to the 24th verse to say he had peace on all sides. 25th verse, say in safety in each man under his own tree. If the whole earth is subject to one king, if there's peace and safety on every side, come on evangelicals, what do people call that? The millennial reign. If you want to enter into a time period of peace like the world has never known, when the world is repaired, what has to happen is the people of God have to learn to put things beneath our feet so that our king can set up his reign on the earth and it will not happen until all his enemies are beneath his feet. When it does happen, though, look at verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any man, including Ethan, the Ezraite, wiser than Haman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about all the animals, the birds, the reptiles, and the fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom 
sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. If this is not ringing a bell with you, maybe we need to read the Tanakh more. Because Isaiah 2, Micah 4, Isaiah 11, and Isaiah 42 all speak of the nations streaming to Jerusalem to listen to the wisdom of the servant of God. They all speak of a time period where because all the enemies had been put beneath the feet, the nations marvel at the king of kings. Turn with me to the fifth chapter. We're going to read a few more verses and then we'll bring this to a close. When Hiram... By the way, this temple... This temple that Solomon's building. <clears throat> unlike the tabernacle that Moses built. Unlike David's tabernacle. The permanent dwelling for God's name. All of it was built under the supervision of a Jewish king. But the nations built it. Think about that. Right now, God is building His dwelling. He's building a temple. Peter says, you are those living stones being built into a dwelling for God. You are. But you're not Jewish. You're just under the supervision of a Jewish king. The nations built the temple. Hiram, king of Tyre, contributed more than anybody else. The nations built the temple. But it was the temple for the name of the Lord God under the supervision of a Jewish king. Watch. When Hiram, king of Tyre heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David. He sent envoys to Solomon because he had always been on friendly terms with David. <laughs> yeah, if you did not like David, you weren't going to get along with Solomon. Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God. Before I read this next part, I want to tell you something. Have you heard that the Lord's temple was in Israel? The Lord's temple? And uh, people talk about the temple of the Lord. It was not the temple of the Lord. It was not the Lord's temple. That is short speak for something. It was the temple where the Lord's name dwelt. His shim, his authority, his reputation, his body of work. But no temple could contain God. I want to draw a parallel for you. The temple could become idolatrous in worshiping the temple in the same way that if God uses Jennifer to do outstanding miracles, we all understand it's not Jennifer, it's God. But on some level, people just want to get close to Jennifer. I mean, there must be something special about Jennifer. Let's get Jennifer's book. Let's go to Jennifer's ministry. Let's sit next to Jennifer. I wonder what Jennifer's eating today. I wonder what Jennifer had for breakfast yesterday. Suddenly the container becomes important. This was just a container. And it couldn't even contain God. It was just the container that bore His name. You cannot come away with any other impression reading 1 Kings. I read 1 Kings late last night and early this morning and it must say it a hundred times. That also lets you know why Stephen spoke the way he did about the temple. But we'll talk about that another day. The name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. David was a man of war. And while the war was ongoing, God would not build a permanent dwelling. But as soon as all enemies were underfoot, the permanent building came. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. And there is no, what's that word? Adversary. Mandy, you, you're a student. What is the word adversary? What's another way to say that? Enemy. There's yet one more way to say it. Mm, church lady. Satan. Adversary and Satan are the same Hebrew word. The time period from the joyful warrior king that carried around the presence of God in a temporary portable dwelling for all the world to see had faded and had faded right into a kingdom of peace with a son of righteousness that ruled the known world in peace. A permanent structure for God's name that all the world could see and a time period with no adversary. If that doesn't strike you as interesting, at some point you should probably read Revelation 20 because it speaks of a king ruling the earth in peace for a thousand years with no adversary. He's bound for a thousand years. 
and the whole world gets to see it done the way that God wants it done. Look at this next verse. I intend, therefore, to build the temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David when he said, Your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build the temple for my name. I want to tell you this, saints. You were made to be above these earthly powers. You were made to trample upon the enemy. The temple that God is building that is the name of God, the thing that showcases His authority and His reputation, cannot be set up in its fullest sense until all of those enemies are beneath our feet. And it starts with what you do tonight. It starts with what you do tomorrow in putting down those enemies. And the end result of this process in your life and in the world at large will be God will have a testimony for His name. You, like Bob and Lynette, followed by Brad, followed by Cynthia, followed by Mario, stone upon stone, living stones, Peter said in 1 Peter 2.5, will become a dwelling that rises to house our God's name. So that when people look at you, they will see the victorious King of Peace come to rule the whole world. But it starts with what you do tomorrow. I can teach you shadows and types about David. I can do it about Solomon all day long. We could even just talk about the furnishings in the tabernacle, the furnishings in the temple. And really, I've spent years doing those things and I enjoy it. I enjoy it more than almost anything else. But if it doesn't result in something that you do differently tomorrow in your life, what good is it? Our king is coming back to assemble a group of people that have put these enemies beneath their feet. Where do you stand with that? You were called to so much more than being trampled on. Is there nobody that feels harassed? Nobody that feels trampled? Well, maybe it's time to put those enemies beneath your feet. Our king wants to make you a permanent dwelling for his name. And it will happen. As surely as Jesus was raised from the dead, no grave will hold this body down. Amen. Y'all stand to your feet. If you started this year, and somebody said if one person got healed of cancer, and you knew them, and you saw it, and you were there the day before, and you were there the day after, what would you think that would do for your spiritual walk? If you had been asked that at the beginning of the year, how about two people? Would you think it'd be too much to ask for three? How about three in your midst and one in Mexico? God will do more than you could ask for or imagine. But how will you respond when he does? You go, oh, well, that's nice. And every day much the same as before? Or does something about it creep down into your very spirit and leave you changed forever? That's what it's supposed to be, saints. Some of you had experiences with God at an altar 20 years ago. And it was wonderful for about two weeks. And it just kind of faded. Some of you ran for a long time and then it just kind of faded. I'm telling you that we need to renew ourselves with Him daily. We need to take an inventory daily and say, Lord, is it on top of me or am I on top of it? Am I being all that you've called me to be today? Because I want to be a vessel for your name. As we do this, there's no limit to what he'll do in our midst. I keep glancing over at Stephanie. Stephanie used to come in our church and just endure. <laughs> now she comes in and she smiles and it's contagious. What a difference a day can make. Sometime tonight, find some time to turn off Seinfeld. Get rid of the Simpsons for a few minutes. Kneel beside your bed and ask God to do the amazing in your life. Ask Him to fix what can't be fixed. Ask Him to grant you repentance unto life. Then believe that you've received it and begin to act like it. And you watch and see. Your life will never be the same. I was just a stupid 18-year-old kid the first time He spoke to me. And nobody that knows me could say my life has ever been anywhere near the same. Could do it for you. Join hands with the people around you. Let's pray.
Mighty, mighty God. Lord, we love You. We thank You for the lessons that have been written down for us that were men's lives. Mighty God, we thank You for the men that have travailed through history to bring us Your written Word. Lord, we love You and we love Your Word. We pray that it would be like seed planted in our heart. That we would begin to believe we were simply too good. Called to too high of a standard. Favored too much by God to be involved in certain things. Lord, that we would not have to make a list of rules. We would just simply need to focus on what You've called us to be. Lord, I pray that You rise up out of this little church prophets and teachers and pastors and evangelists and earth shakers for Your name's sake. Lord, we give You this preschool behind us. We ask You, mighty God, to raise up Nathans, to raise up prophets, mighty God, seers, to raise up men who call to the heavens for fire and are answered from the throne of God. Lord, we give You this neighborhood. We ask that it would be loaned us as an inheritance. Lord, that we would begin to see lives changed and marriages healed. We're asking to be Your hands and feet as You've called us to be. Show us the good work You've prepared in advance for us to do, Lord, and we will do it. In the name of Jesus, we commit our way. Amen. Amen. Amen.